Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about what we're doing in all this heat. We report on a solo driver in the HOV lane who had a perfect explanation. We give you an update on one of our previous conversation subjects. We let you in on how the queen breaks in her royal shoes. We pass along another bit of old doggerel. We take you back to the world's oldest unsolved murder. And we marvel at the way expert witnesses are hauling in big paydays. The old dog's conversation is something special. The musings of an Irish tour guide from the island of Inishmore. Stay with us. All right, Paul, what's on your mind? You know what I've been thinking about, Jim? No. It has been so dang hot lately. Yeah. It's been miserable Mm. and... uh, you know, it's all related to climate change, but mm-hmm. it's the thing that the heat really kind of forces you to live indoors. Yeah. 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 Well, it sure does around here. And I know that in talking with other folks, uh, even up north and, and out east, out west, uh, everybody seems to be going through a heat wave right now. Yeah. yeah I, I, I normally like to take a walk. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm forced to do it early in the morning or late at night because... Yeah during the day is just miserable and you know it's going to take i think things like this to bring home the whole idea of climate change Mm. until it gets uncomfortable until it pinches our shoes uh, we may not do anything about it that's kind of the way that our country operates yeah i wonder if that isn't uh, one of the reasons why there's some action in congress now about uh, actually addressing the question of climate change yeah that would be good uh and it isn't just the heat, it's the other climate issues oh, yeah. like flooding. You mm-hmm. know, flooding is going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, most recently, Kentucky, Kentucky had some disastrous mm-hmm. floods, mm-hmm. Uh, wildfires. We've mm-hmm. got them in Texas. They've got them in Colorado, California, New Mexico. Yesterday, I walked out to get the mail and there was a cow skull on my front lawn. Oh, really? Yeah. It was probably a neighbor, wasn't it? <laughs> really? Yeah, and you know, it occurs to me, uh, remember when we were confined indoors because of COVID, or at least we oh, couldn't. Oh, we still are. What are you talking about? Well, you know, at least we could go outside. We could take a walk because it was okay to be outside. Uh, but now you don't even have that option, right? So what do you do? What are you doing indoors that might uh, amuse you in a different way than you did before uh well i have a podcast yeah and that keeps me indoors does does anyone know about it (laughs) no Uh, a select few (laughs) that you probably don't realize that you're my partner in that enterprise (laughs) what a shock Uh, what else so anyway you you jack up the air conditioner Mm. which uses a lot of energy Oh, yes. Uh, you and avoid then they say, going outside, where, which is where the fresh air is. Mm. And uh, that, so there's probably going to be something called uh, uh, climate change lung <laughs> that's related <laughs> related to breathing the indoor air again and again and again. 
A pregnant woman in Texas came up with a novel excuse when she was stopped for driving solo in an HOV lane. This broad nugget is from Yahoo News, dated July 9th, 2022. Brandy Batoon of Plano, Texas, was trying to avoid being late to pick up her son, so she got into the high-occupancy vehicle lane. The HOV lane requires two passengers, as you know, and of course she was pulled over. The officer approached her car and inquired where the second passenger was. <laughs> Batoon, who was 34 weeks pregnant, pointed to her stomach. <laughs> she tried to argue that her unborn baby should qualify as the additional passenger. With the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the Texas Penal Code recognizes an unborn baby as a person. Well, unfortunately, the officer that pulled her over missed the irony of her argument and issued her a $275 ticket, explaining that the additional passenger had to be outside of her body. Hmm. It seems that the state of Texas wants to have it both ways. An unborn baby is a person unless it's traveling in an HOV lane. Hmm. Maybe the Texas legislature will clarify this gray area in the next session. The debate should be very interesting, Jim. I don't think so. We just got a note from our interview subject in Old Dogs episode number 58. Sandra Cavallo-Miller is a retired family physician and novelist. She has a new book coming out in mid-August titled Out of Patients. <laughs> now, that's the kind of patients in hospital gowns, not the kind of patients you need in rush hour. One reviewer called it an astutely sensitive depiction of life as a physician, a companionably agreeable novel laced with lightsome humor. Sounds like a good summer read. Once more, the author is Sandra Cavallo-Miller, and the novel is Out of Patience. And now for a mea culpa. In our oh, last yeah. episode, we confused our chief aging officer's website for her book on aging. Here are the true facts. Kathleen O'Brien has a website called Grow Old, Be Happy. The title of her wonderful book is Reclaim Your Right to Grow Old. It's available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble bookstores. We will do our best to keep them straight in the future. Yeah, sorry about that, Kathleen. Everyone finds the task of breaking in new shoes to be a necessary, if slightly painful, experience, except the Queen of England. This pod nugget is from the Interesting Facts website. The Queen is often on her feet for hours at frequent royal occasions. She's also known to walk at a sprightly pace. Now, if it were one of us commoners, we would find a comfortable walking shoe to match that pace. Maybe a comfy pair of New Balance cross trainers. But, of course, the Queen couldn't wear an athletic shoe in public. Bad show for a royal Windsor. The favorite shoe of Her Majesty is Anello and David loafers. Slightly clunky-looking leather shoes with a modest heel. And like any leather shoe, there is a break-in period before they're comfortable. And this job is usually assigned to one of the queen's dressers. During the break-in period, the aide is required to wear beige cotton ankle socks and only walk on carpeted floors. Well, if this all seems too extravagant, the Queen's wardrobe designer pointed out there's a good reason for farming out the task. He explained that the Queen can never say, I am uncomfortable, I can't walk anymore. That would be a major royal faux pas. 
The queen's shoe care extends beyond a staffer with a similar-sized foot walking around the castle. Her Highness has a whole team assigned to the royal footwear. They are tasked with airing out shoes, polishing them, and finally storing them in silk drawstring bags. Now that is service fit for a queen. For our next edition of Old Doggerel, we turn to the internet and the fiendish practice of requiring passwords to access a site. I understand that there may be sensitive information on the internet that you want to protect, but it's getting out of hand. Now they have added personal questions once you get past the passwords. I have close to a hundred usernames and passwords that I need to remember. On my desk, I have about 30 sticky notes with frequently used passwords on them. For less frequented sites, I have file folders that I have to leave through. The old doggerel term for this torture is password purgatory, a place of endlessly paying for the sin of accessing the Internet. Now, I have enough trouble remembering names, you know. It's impossible to remember a random combination of letters, numbers, and symbols. Every new password is another sticky note on my desk. I could probably list 10 or less sites that I'd really need to protect. But do I need a password to access a newspaper subscription? Buy a t-shirt? Or even give money to a charity? How about I just promise I'm not a robot and get on with it? Are you sure about that? That I'm not a robot? Yeah. If you like murder mysteries, here is one that is tough to solve because it's a really cold case. This prod nugget is from National Geographic from May 28, 2015. Here are the facts. The murder occurred in north-central Spain. The attacker hit the victim twice in the head, leaving matching holes above the victim's left eyebrow. A face-to-face attack with a blunt instrument best fits the evidence. The body was then dropped down a 43-foot shaft into a cave. Investigators described the victim as a young adult, but the age and gender are unknown because they only found the skull. (laughs) They couldn't find the murder weapon. And they didn't check for fingerprints, tire tracks, footprints, or DNA. If this sounds like sloppy police work, the murder site was subject to the elements for a long time. A long, long time. Well, the murder happened 430,000 years ago, and it is the oldest provable murder that paleontologists have found. Now, this doesn't mean that killing was uncommon that long ago, but fossilized remains of our ancestors are rare so far back. In the fossil record, there are many cases of traumatic injury, but not a lot of evidence of killing. So, unfortunately, this cold case will never be solved. Any eyewitnesses are long gone. No cave drawing of the perpetrator was found, and both of us have alibis for our whereabouts. Absolutely. Yep. We were inventing fire a half continent away. And that burns. (laughs) If you would like to pick up some quick cash, consider being an expert witness in a courtroom. This pod nugget is from the newsletter, The Hustle. Expert witnesses are used in eight out of ten trials in the U.S. Since they're presented as experts, they tend to have an impact on judges and juries, which often leads to dueling testimony. In a high-profile case, it's not unusual to have six or more experts testifying. In short, being an expert in a courtroom is big business. Since there are virtually no fee caps... 
Experts are often paid an outrageous rate for their services. In a recent survey of over a thousand expert witnesses, these were the average fees. Case prep was $422 an hour, a deposition was $524 an hour, and trial testimony was $550 an hour. In a typical case, the average take-home pay was $13,000 for about 25 hours of work. But in one case, a forensic architect who investigated the causes of construction failures reported getting paid $2.4 million. When attorneys need to find an expert, there are directories, referral services, and journals that compile your options in hundreds of different trades. On SEEK's Expert Witness Directory, you can find the background of over 2,000 experts in a variety of fields from street sweepers to ski accident reconstructionists. Now, being an expert witness extends beyond expertise and knowledge. Attorneys often look for traits like confidence, attractiveness, and poise. Boy, that sure sounds like a beauty contest. So it's not enough to be knowledgeable. You have to make a good first impression. So we got that good first impression thing mm-hmm. down. What could you be an expert witness at, Jim? Hmm. Well, how about saying words out loud for money and trying to find a contractor for my back fence? How about you, Paul? I think holding my own in domestic disputes <laughs> and making grilled cheese sandwiches. What do you suppose that's worth? <laughs> I'd pay five bucks an hour. Oh, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jim, we certainly have a different conversation in this episode. Uh, Do you want to explain uh, who we're talking to? Yes. Well, I went to Ireland with my family. This no uh, kidding. Yes, in the oh, and you left me behind to do all the housework, didn't you? Well, but I was still doing editing even that that remote. Anyway, we had a great time. Uh, The whole family went. My wife, our two kids, and uh, their kids. And we toured mostly the west coast of Ireland, uh, which is wild and romantic and gorgeous. Every part of it was just beautiful. When you said it's wild and beautiful, uh, it's very craggy, right? It's These are cliffs that uh, go right down to the ocean, correct? Or, yeah, or most, most cliffs don't go down to the ocean. They stop about halfway, but the Irish cliffs go all the way. Oh, wow. Well, you got your money's worth Yes, there. we did. And you don't want to get too close to the edge because there's no fences, Paul. You're just going to get blown off. Okay. Well, I think we've heard enough about that. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the context of the conversation. Who is the man that's talking to us? Uh, the gentleman is a man named Michael Hernan. He was our bus driver on the Isle of Inishmore in the Aran Islands. Uh, which is a famous place where they make wool sweaters, and I bought me one. But Michael was our tour guide, essentially, uh, and a very colorful, funny, and uh, wonderful fellow. So I decided I was going to record him while he was talking about the island as we drove around. Now, I'm, i I got to tell people, there's some noise in the background, and that's that's noise of the bus traveling down the road? Yeah, uh-huh. And, and uh, give us kind of an overview. What, what did you all talk about? Well, we wanted him to talk about the island and uh, some of the history of the island and some of the background of the people and uh, just how they managed to live in such a wildly remote and inhospitable place. There's no trees. Uh, there's no natural resources. Uh, there's, there's still sheep. There's still cows. 
but that's about it. And uh, he gave a wonderful, colorful rendition of uh, what it's like to live in the Aran Islands. Well, let's go ahead and listen to that. All right, here he is, Michael Hernan. Still not good enough to go swimming, is it? No. Nobody on the beach. Oh, we saw a couple swimming the other day. Ah, yeah, we had them there this morning. It's but much colder weather, yeah. That's, that's the hunt for the lifeguard there, you know, probably the best job on the yeah, island. He he's wet three times a year and he's usually in the pub if you need him. Huh? Anybody mad enough to go swimming, he reckons you might as well leave him in there. They're beyond saving. <laughs> Electricity arrived on this island about 1970s, so you had no power television or lights or fridges before the 1970s. And then you got diesel generators, and probably about 12, 15 years ago they dragged the cable under sea from the mainland. Now we go back to the other side of the island, it's the north side. The scenic route that gets a little bit too scenic sometimes when the sea comes in and washes parts of the road away. Yeah, in the winter it happens very often, yeah, it probably happens maybe. Uh, Six, seven times every winter. Michael, can you give us a little description of the island in Gaelic and Irish? What's that? Give us a description of what we're seeing in Irish. Oh yeah, well, in time you got said you bore off work, so I've been looking at quite a few things on our side. Just like we go out and more, I guess fact you had in Spanish in door one one, you can't see that. I guess the thing is, it's going to be I would you believe that? <laughs> I got August. August, <laughs> yeah. And. And. August, these walls are all washed out by the sea. You see that? Yeah. The waves walk to the hill there in the winter. Tell us about the walls, the way they stack them so they can be taken down. Oh, you mean the gaps, is it? Yes. Gap yeah, the, the, gap the, gap the little V-shape, you see the little V-shaped gaps here? The little V-shaped gaps like that, they build that up to keep the animals in, they knock it down again, they're like stone gates that never rust. You know, one person might have five or six little fields in one plot, and then if you want to keep your animals in one field, you just build up the little gaps, and when you want to move them into another field, you knock them down. They're, they're like little stone gates, like. Yeah. All this big pile of rock you see along the edge, you know, is all piled in by the sea. That's all broken off the off the edge and piled in by the waves. The big boulders of rock you see as well, they're granite. They don't belong to us, you know. We're all limestone, they're granite. You see them uh, here and there along the edge of the shore. Where did they come from? Eh, well, the mainland is Connemara, and that's granite, and we're limestone, so they, they would have been rolled in from there. We don't know how far out, like, the, the granites might be starting, you know, maybe halfway out is, is limestone, but after that it could be granite. So you find that uh, it takes a, a, a big wave to roll them in, but uh, it might have taken a while, but you can see them ending up all along the edge of the coast. You don't have any heating material on the island either, you know, no trees, no bogs, no coal, no oil. You have nothing to burn out here, so in the winter, uh, you know, you have to bring something in from the mainland these days, mostly coal and oil. Up to the 1970s they had no money to import anything, so they took some drastic measures and maybe like the Wild West, they used to dry and burn the cow dung. Oh, yeah. And uh, believe it or not, when it was dry, it used to burn very well. It didn't smell great, but it burned well. Irish breakfast might have been a bit tricky on the island that time. <laughs> mm. 
Well, it's pungent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> probably, yeah. Well, it's that thing you find as well that uh, somebody had to dry it, which was the messy job, because it wouldn't dry in the long grass, so you had to, you had to lift it out the long grass and put it on top of the wall. Mm. Uh, or maybe if you had a lot of patience, you could, might be able to train one of the cows to reverse and do it for you, maybe, you know. I don't know which was easier, but that's what they did for hundreds of years, you know. The cows to do it. <laughs> I think I'd rather train the cow as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. You see little troughs in the fields, they catch the rain from the animals. Like on the left, sloping slab and trough. You don't have any lakes on the island, you don't have any rivers on the island. Well, drinking water can get scarce in the summer. It doesn't rain a lot. So, they have them little troughs, but up to the 70s, you have no plumbing in the houses. Your, your water comes out of natural spring wells. No plumbing meant that you had to carry the water from the wells, and that was the lovely chore you used to get before and after school. The youngsters used to do that. And plenty of time to do it, you know. They were the days before they got their hands on their threaded Facebook or Playstations or anything like that, you know. <laughs> Two big buckets and have fun with them. So you do have wells? Yeah, lots of wells. Anywhere there's limestone, there's lots of natural spring wells. Mm -hmm. There's hundreds of them on the island. They only use the ones on the high side of the houses. No pollution gets into them. See, you might see a head popping out of the water there. That's a seal, you see? Oh, right in the middle ten there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten o'clock, it's a grey seal. The tide goes out, they lie on the rocks out in the middle and the tide is coming in now. A bit of a nuisance if you're a fisherman, they raid your drift nets, you don't get any fish, you get heads and tails. If you're sea angling, you're pulling in a nice fish, next thing the seal comes and snatches the fish, the hooks and the line and everything. Or, uh, definitely not the fisherman's friends. This old building was a seaweed factory. They used to burn seaweed there to make iodine, an antiseptic medicine, you might have heard of it. Yeah. yeah. Years gone by, it used to sting like hell, so you kind of knew it was working. These lakes, they're saltwater lakes, you find them around the seashore. Swans down the far side, you get little ducks and moorhens and birds like that. They nest there as well, they don't seem to mind sea water. Great island for birds because you don't have predators, no foxes and no mink and no pesticides and nobody hunts. And they couldn't find it, everybody's a fisherman, anything that swims is a goner, but nobody bothers hunting. A lot of pheasant, a lot of duck, a lot of quail, a lot of geese come in here certain times of the year. You don't eat any of them? Hmm? You don't eat any of Nobody that? bothers hunting, no. Nobody ever hunted on the island. They eat a lot of fish out here, you know. Yeah. Anything that swims, everybody fishes for it. Do a lot of shoreline fishing as well as out in boats. Oh, that's the, the little lighthouse up there, the famous Aaron Lighthouse. Maybe famous for being infamous. <laughs> because uh, the islands were under English rule. Cromwell's army came out here and did for hundreds of years afterwards up to about 1920 under English rule, but that little lighthouse was built by an English engineer about 200 years ago and he came to the island to build it and for some reason he decided he'd put one lighthouse on the whole island so he stuck it right in the middle of it and the boats could see the light but they couldn't see the five miles of land on each side of it. <laughs> you know? And they, you know the islanders didn't tell him it wouldn't work, they knew well it wouldn't because they didn't have any boats themselves, you know. They didn't have any boats so it wasn't their boats getting wrecked and they didn't have any trees so the, the driftwood was very welcome, you know? <laughs> serves them right, those Yeah, things. serves them right as well, they should have stayed where they were. <laughs> and every once in a while a barrel of whiskey would yeah, survive, yeah, right? That's, <laughs> that's the recycling centre behind you then, they recycle all the household rubbish. No incinerators, no rubbish tips, all recycling. You have a fuel station is in there as well, and 
the only fuel we have is is diesel you know you don't have any more uh, petrol on the island not for the last 20 years because for health and safety reasons or something like that uh, the boats the cargo boats were stopped carrying petrol to the island so. oh. we had a lot of saints in Aaron years ago they call it Aaron of the saints or or in Nonoive in Irish and the little church you see up here ahead of us is called Saint Kieran he was out here way back in the 6th century you see the little church there and then you have a attached cottage up behind the trees there's a priest there and he's a Celtic priest and he marries people in this church believe it or not oh. and he'd have up to 30 weddings every year there and he probably prays the night before it won't be raining because the roof is not great <laughs> on it you know probably hasn't been since the 9th century like what you've been hearing how about sharing the joy with your friends we can always use more listeners there are more episodes on the way so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon